0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'm very happy to say that today we have Professor Kate O'Neill on the show. And we are going to talk about her telegraphically titled book, Waste. It's just called Waste. And it's out from Polity Press very recently, I think this year. And Kate, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Marshall. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Our pleasure. Can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, I am a professor of global environmental politics at UC Berkeley. I am in the environmental science policy and management department and I teach global environmental politics and I work on the global politics of waste.
0: So can you tell us why you wrote the book Waste?
1: Waste has been a long time passion of mine. I think if you talk to people who work or or write in this business, often that's the case. And for me, it goes back to actually childhood memories of visiting what we call the the local tip in Australia to uh, take things there. And my memory is of uh, burning tires and and, um, smoke and smells, I think possibly uh, awakened a lifelong interest in this. We also... Um, did recycling and we 're talking the early seventies here, so uh, my parents were early adopters, and we would go to what in the u s is called the transfer station and sort our stuff so all of that kind of i think stuck with me for many years and during graduate school, I got interested in environmental justice as well as international environmental politics, and that got me into working on the international trade and hazardous waste, so that was my first book and after that, I kind of left the the waste field for uh, a number of years, and then a few years ago, I got asked by polity Press to write this book on waste uh, as a global resource. and for me, that was a wonderful opportunity to really um, go back to this world after twenty years and find out what had changed and I found an awful lot had so thinking about waste as a Global resource, I think, is is a really interesting way to reconceptualize how many people think of the problem. So the predominant way people do think about waste is that it is something that is just picked up and taken away and not thought about again. And instead, in fact, waste contain an awful lot of resources, from precious metals to potential for energy. Um, to the potential for recycling. In fact, once you look at any type of waste, there's a value to it. Uh, Even sewage can be reprocessed to become fertilizer. So understanding waste in that way was the first thing that was important. The second was looking at it in comparison to other global resources like uh, forests, like oil, metals, and so on. And these resources we often talk about as being very much under constraint and under pressure. And in fact, waste is one of the few global resources that is in fact quite the opposite. So it is a resource that's in fact growing. So thinking about it that way means that we can think about waste as a potential reservoir for materials that we've put into products but need to re-extract as we move forward. So that was exciting for me to think about it in that way, but to also think about waste as a different sort of uh, resource in that it also carries with it significant risks from reprocessing it, from uh, reassembling, dismantling, putting it in the ground. All of these these things create this sort of magnified risk uh, that has been, a risk that I should say has been magnified by the globalization of waste and the larger quantities we produce. So a couple of examples would be uh, the huge landfills that are growing up around cities in the global south, uh, which often support communities of five to ten thousand people within a kilometer, um, and often on that waste facility, and uh, wastes the waste pile up to the extent that that waste slides, quote unquote, can kill hundreds of people a year. So that's one instance, and another is really of uh, uh, sometimes of toxicity in the amount of e-waste, chemical waste, and all of the other uh, types of toxic waste. Medical waste is another example that goes with um, the field. And finally, I might add, in the wake of fires in California and other kinds of weather disasters as a result of climate change, one thing I'm very interested in, but didn't have that much of a chance to go into in the book, is, is disaster waste, so the waste that comes out of out of and after fires hurricanes, and so on that is a sort of fascinating but also terrible mix of rubble um biological matter uh, animals and and often human remains so that's that's another piece of this puzzle and then finally, I would say that it was really fascinating to see how much uh, wastes cross global borders so nearly every kind of waste that can be imagined actually gets shipped overseas. And we think about electronic waste as something that we in the West get rid of, although the story is actually a lot more complicated than that. But also shoes, um, you know, secondhand goods, clothes, shoes, uh, bicycles, cars, uh, food waste gets shipped. And most recently, of course, we've known a lot about, found out a lot about China's, Crackdown on on imports of plastic and paper scrap and the impacts that that uh, which happened in March twenty eighteen the impacts that that has had on on um, national uh, recycling markets. So suddenly we understood that we had this huge global market that's now gone away. So all of this added up to really what I would think of as as a real passion for this topic and a real sort of mission to, to write this book and, 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 and get it out there. Uh, if you talk to the folks at Polity, they will, they will note that I took a long time to write this book, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But in the end, I think the timing of just having this year and a half, really almost two years of fantastic <laughs> developments and stories around China and plastic waste and getting to understand more What new patterns of waste trade look like from southern countries to southern countries, not just north to south, I think gave me an opportunity to produce a book that has appeared at exactly the right time.
0: Well, that's great. Thank you very much for that. I want to say that your waste is somebody else's business. And I learned this. It's often the case. I I learned this uh, actually while I was renovating houses. We mentioned that in the pre-interview. So I was ripping a lot of stuff out of these houses and a lot of metal particularly, including old appliances and things. And I just moved to New England and I didn't know what to do with it. So I just stuck it outside the house. And then suddenly this guy shows up with a pickup and he's like, what are you going to do with that? I'm like, I'm going to pay somebody to haul it away. And he's like, I'll haul it away for free. <laughs> I'm like, really? And he's like, I might even pay you something for it. I'm like, really? Is that a thing? He's like, Yes, it is. And uh you should here's my card. And if uh you produce any more of this metal, you just call me and I'll come take it away for you. And apparently this is a a, a kind of a standard thing in New England. It wasn't where I, I I grew up. But there are people that just wander around looking for people ripping stuff out of houses so that they can go and I don't know what they do with the metal. I didn't ask. Uh, but apparently they make money from it. And I, I guess, look, can I ask you a historical question? Cause I'm a historian. Yep. Mm-hmm. When did the processing of waste uh, become big business? Because it's enormous business now.
1: Right. Uh, oh, that's a good question.
0: If you uh, don't know, that's fine. Uh, I just yeah. was. like,
1: well, It's been big business. Uh, I think really since the industrial revolution. I mean, it's, <laughs> relative uh, obviously um the origins of the waste business were small and scattered compared to the big concentrated global firms we have collecting waste today but the um the profession of waste picking is one of the oldest ones yeah and it goes back to sort of scrap sellers in the streets of london on the streets of the world's big cities especially in the u.s the cities grew and waste in general. Not just waste that the scrap that could be easily repaired, but household waste, sewage and so on um, became sewage, the the construction of sewage systems was absolutely central to the modern city and ending disease epidemics. So in that way, there was that evolution of waste management systems, and then the evolution of waste pickup, and particularly municipal waste pickup being run, so so waste pickup being run by by cities and towns, had to do with the fact that certain organized criminal elements were stepping in and dealing and actually you know running these waste businesses too. So you see this kind of formalization of waste management happening over the years, and the growth of these huge corporations around the world that collect the waste and often recycle it, companies like Waste Management, uh, companies like Veolia, which is based in Europe. And then you also still see a very sort of uh, scattered, by scattered sort of decentralized um, waste pickup industries that and companies that operate all over the world. And here you see it some uh, but in developing countries, in particular, the the, the profession of, of waste picker, like over, I think over two million people in the world work on kind of scavenging, waste picking. It's their livelihood, and it's it's a very important source of livelihood for for many people around the world. And I think with what you said about um, waste pickup is that you um, we all live in a Local and then a global waste economy. So we might think we're throwing something out, but in fact, it might be being picked up and turned into something more useful. And once you start seeing those patterns, it's really interesting because uh, you know you put something out. I mean, I live in Chicago part time, and you put something out in the alleyways, and no idea. It's gone. It's gone within like an hour, hour and a half. And you're like, how did that happen? How are people just so attuned? to what gets put out on the street that they know to come collect it. And then also how do you have like waste pickers in Senegal knowing scrap prices, global scrap prices, as they pick up scrap and, and sell it on for whatever they can get for it. So there are a lot of, a lot of different ways in which the waste business exists.
0: I was going to say you mentioned rag pickers or yeah that that's the example that occurs to me. I don't even know if it's true, but uh you know the idea is that people would take old people's clothes and then sell it to paper makers and because paper was made largely of 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 cloth at the time so I, again I don't know if that is true if anybody's listening to this and wants to correct me, I'd be happy to be corrected. <laughs> it's good lore though, so I, and again I don't know if you can answer this question but Uh, How big is the multifaceted waste industry today? That's a hard one. That's a tough one. I know. Yeah, Yeah, that's a tough one. Well, we can just say it's very, very, very big. And I'm interested Mm -hmm. in the transnational part of it because you mentioned that because I don't know exactly where my waste that is from my household goes. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, when I throw away, I know that my kids play at a playground that is made of recycled sneakers. Mm. I don't, I don't, I don't know how that works, but apparently it is. Can you talk a little bit about the movement of waste across borders?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the movement of waste across borders actually has a long history. From um, one of the earliest recorded examples is uh, brick dust being shipped from uh, from from London to to Russia again nineteenth century. So there you brick go, dust. Yes touch of russian history i guess it was reformed into other bricks uh but the waste trade itself uh, became most visible in the 1980s with examples of hazardous waste hazardous waste often in the traditional sense of barrels of toxic sludge being dumped from uh rich countries in the north to um, the south or to east central europe if you're looking at the cold war era germany used to Ship quite a lot of hazardous waste just over the border into East Germany and after reunification became responsible for it. But the, the visible piece of this was um, ships plying the oceans with their load of, of toxic cargo and dumping them on Haiti, on South Africa, communities that, um, that were ill equipped to deal with these. You also see uh, hazardous wastes of value, um, global ships. End-of-life ships are an example that uh, was were prominent again in the 80s and 90s. And the ships themselves were not, at, they were shipped under their own steam, so not as waste. They were shipped until they reached their destination where they were beached and then dismantled by armies of, of local workers. This often, uh, we're looking at India and Bangladesh, were big destinations and possibly still are. But all of this combined led to a, um, a convention, the Basel Convention on the Hazardous Waste Trade, that um, seeks still seeks to prevent this particular kind of trade. Although, as it turns out, this is only a very narrow slice of what crosses borders. The other piece in which people are well aware, I think, is uh, electronic waste and all the computers, appliances, all you know, personal devices that get obsolete within just one or two years, uh get often get shipped overseas, uh, to be dismantled in Nigeria, Ghana, India, again, a lot of the same sorts of places, and this trade uh was fairly rapidly condemned but hasn't stopped. And if you look at some of the new studies, you know, you've got this diversion of 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 people who sort of portray this um, primarily or wholly, as this instance of just simply wealthy countries taking their stuff and dumping it on these poor countries who are just being polluted and and have to dismantle it under terrible conditions and what 's coming out from some people who 've actually spent time is that you 're seeing uh, some other trends that are uh, really overtaking this this narrative one is that that these sorts of wastes e waste often circulate from among the within the global south so it's not really just a rich country poor country issue anymore and that also a lot of them are actually you know taken repaired and refurbished and sold under reasonable conditions in small workshops and so on scattered around around um the larger dump where the elements that really can't be used wind up so it's complicated so that's e-waste and then uh clothing I've known about clothing being shipped uh, to countries and um, particularly in Africa since I was a graduate student living in the very top of Manhattan in Inwood, just north of, of Washington Heights and having a warehouse nearby that sold clothing by the pound and kind of following up on that a little bit, reading about it and discovering that also a lot of leftover clothes were shipped overseas. And cars from here often wind up in Mexico, but cars from Japan can wind up in Mozambique. Bicycles, people um, can buy bicycles and just kind of have them shipped from wherever they were left secondhand back to their own countries where they're refurbished and resold. And food waste, I, I kind of, that was, a, that was sort of an, a different way of thinking about food waste because we tend to think about it as a very local thing, but if you actually look at food, the history of food aid and the shipment of surplus grains to, um, to, again, countries in Africa, countries experiencing famine or hunger, you see often the impact of these, these grains overwhelming local agriculture. So it's kind of a case of dumping. And that essentially is a waste trade. That is shipping waste across national borders. So even food waste will travel. From one country to
0: another. Yeah, that's very interesting because I remember I was in Russia in this was the early nineties. Was it the early nineties, late? 80? I don't remember when it was exactly. But there's a thing in Russian called Noski Busha, mm-hmm. and these were chicken legs that were sent by the Bush administration.
1: Oh yeah, the chicken legs. <laughs> yes, I remember this.
0: <laughs> every Russian of a certain age knows about the Noski Busha. Bush's legs, <laughs> dump chicken legs on the Russian market, and I don't know why America had such a great surfeit of chicken legs, but we did, and everybody knows about these you know, things.
1: You know that the uh, the the antibiotics side of that, Russia no, I don't was know. claiming that that. Um, the U.S. always sent the right legs of chickens, or maybe the left, <laughs> but the side that had the antibiotic injection. Apparently, yeah. I always thought it was in food. Maybe it was injections back then, or maybe the, you I know that know. was just simply not the case. But I, yeah, that was actually that was actually Russia's claim. I don't know how you can tell which leg of the chicken is which, but. Yeah.
0: I don't know either. Yeah. Yeah that's, uh-huh. yeah. that's probably more, that's probably harder than sexing a chicken is to tell the right leg from the left <laughs> leg. Although I'm sure I'm wrong about that. And I'll hear from some listener. It's like, it's very easy. You just do this. Yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about computers cause and, and, and phones and things like this, because one of the things that I always am a little bit, of, I'm sitting in front of a six year old computer and I just, I've owned so many computers in my life, so I'm just not going to replace it until it dies. I'm sorry. I just, I it's killing me because it's perfectly good and does exactly what I did when I bought it. Uh (laughs) And, uh, but I have like discarded a lot of perfectly good computers. What happens to those? I know it's a rather specific question, but what Uh happens to those computers if they don't get refurbished and resold by Apple or something? I don't Uh
1: know. If they don't, then uh, sometimes, you know, people will buy them. There's a lot of instances of the small companies here that you take them to who will package them up and ship them overseas and make a small profit. Uh, so that happens. Again, it depends on, on how valuable the metals within them are. What happens literally is often they're just ground up here. And I'm assuming the metals are extracted somehow, but I'm not sure how eff- effectively or how well. So I really focused on on how much or the, the e-waste that were being shipped overseas. It's really hard to um, actually figure out how much was being shipped. I I read some interesting um, studies of, well, how can we even tell? I mean, there are these numbers that are floating around, quite high percentages, but they're not really based on actual sort of on-the-ground counting or studies of what what was happening with e-waste. And so, again, we don't really know. It's also easy to ship in small lightweight packages and you know really have a sense of being able to track those through ports or anything although people have tried and we have some data from those from those sorts of studies so it can go uh to various places and sometimes it's you know things are refurbished within this country uh we often buy refurbished uh, computers in my household Either I've done it myself. Yes. Or they, yeah, they can show up as a brick, or they can show up as a fully functional computer that has a a lifespan that you'd expect from a computer. Yeah.
0: yeah. I was. It's interesting you mentioned data because I was wondering just about this because it, since it is something people are throwing away, with all the senses of that word, it it, it must be a hard thing to get good data on, particularly in environments where it's. Largely unregulated, in the government or whomever, businesses are not keeping good track, or right. even hiding what they're throwing away, which is something right. you might well do. Uh huh. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, is there good data? For example, does China provide good data about what it does with all its waste? I, you
1: know. Mm, no, not really. Uh, it it provides some. I mean, we know that. They're in the midst of constructing many waste-to-energy facil, a waste-to-energy incineration facilities around the country, um, but generally, and we know that it's redeveloped some of the cities and towns where e-waste was being processed to turn them into more kind of regulated business areas, industrial parks where this dis- disassembly happens. So the government then can actually... I mean, there was sort of an environmental incentive to do this, but also an incentive for the government to be able to regulate this industry, collect fees and revenues and taxes and so on. So that's hard to tell. But in terms of the municipal solid waste, which is often one of the biggest issues because it's... Yeah, that's what I was thinking about, yeah. No, it it piles up. I mean, specifically in China, there was um, a documentary produced a number of years ago by uh, Wang Jilang. Uh, He produced Plastic China, which I talk a lot about, but one of his earlier documentaries was called Beijing Besieged by Waste. And for that, he actually did a lot of the work himself, uh, going around Beijing on on a moped and kind of tracking down all these little facilities and plants somewhat, somewhat illegally and, or at least unofficially, and, documented many of those uh, just to demonstrate how many they were and map them. And that was, that was a pretty impressive feat. But again, it was done very informally by this one person making, making this documentary.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, one of the reasons it's it's interesting about municipal waste, because I met a guy once whose job it was to go from landfill to landfill uh, here on the East coast and essentially measure, well, to take various metrics of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And he was particularly interested in water runoff. Like he was essentially a chemist, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as far as I could tell. He was a chemist. Mm -hmm. And he would stick rods into these landfills and pull out some material and figure out what was going on in the landfill and to see exactly what's coming off of them. But I just don't imagine in most of the world there's that degree of sophistication in dealing with landfills. No.
1: And you're not even dealing with landfills as we understand them. I mean, we, you're dealing with open dumps a lot of the time. Yeah,
0: right. And
1: yeah. again, there aren't really ways to measure those um, and how they, what kind of toxins they give off. I mean, there are international organizations that do that. Uh, the World Bank is developed is developing some projects around the world to sort of rationalize waste sites. Uh, the international solid waste association has a campaign to close some of the world's our largest dumps because of these issues but this is not this is fairly politically contentious but all of this is really to say i as far as i know there's there's very little direct measurement in many parts of the world especially the parts of the world where the problem is really going to get worse and worse as urbanization takes off and cities grow Uh, in Nigeria, China, Mexico, all these other places where there's no real effective waste disposal infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So we're going to see bigger problems Mm -hmm. there.
0: Well, I've I've saved the last segment of our talk to talk about plastics because plastics are very much in the news and we all use plastic. And I was going to say we all love plastic, but we all use plastic. Uh (laughs) Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) We used to
1: love plastics. Uh, yeah, we used talk to love plastic At the a lot, end yeah. of the affair, when it comes to,
0: yeah, to right. plastics, well, we, that's a very common thing. We used to love medical. white bread, too. I remember uh-huh. my mom. She loved Wonder Bread. She thought it was the greatest thing of all time. Um, <laughs> so, could you talk a little bit about the state of plastic waste? What's being done with it? What can be done with it? Uh, the effects yeah. that it's having, the way in which it's being regulated or not? Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, is it really just a pure. Externality and there's no use for the stuff, um, or is there some hope for using right. plastics yeah, yeah.
1: well, because it's a very critical problem I mean it's in the news, it's in the news because of China's Operation National sword and no longer impor- um, importing it basically took up to half of the plastic waste we produced, and also of course the issue of plastics in the oceans, which is very significant yeah and we're coming to realize just how Plastics production and use has risen exponentially, even in just the last, like, 15 to 20 years. So we've got an awful lot of it about. It doesn't degrade, at least not for many, many, many years. It's hard to destroy. And um, it's it doesn't recycle well on the whole. Uh, many types of plastic are just kind of constructed cheaply and not meant to be uh, recycled and if they do get recycled it's often it often downgrades so uh, you often hear the figure that 10% only around 10% of the plastics produced in the U.S. is actually sent for recycling and of that very little has ever recycled more than once so I think that that's um, that's a big problem but at the same time Well, there's a couple of of sort of directions you can think about. One is that certain kinds of plastics can be recycled, the hard plastics, the ones and twos and turned back into useful objects, Uh, things like uh, planking for patios and decks, building chairs, um, which is all of these, these sorts of things that are pretty useful and which we use a fair amount of. Um, you might notice if you're redecorating houses, that might be something you use, or yep. yeah. renovating houses that might might come into play. So there are those sorts of products and, and many others. So it does have some value. It's not uh, value-free by any means, but it is um, what I call in the book is sort of, well, let me th- say it's, it's sort of, if you have wastes and scrap, which are kind of two sides of the same coin, And you have things that are very obviously like, you know, the used metal from uh, dismantled houses, that's scrap. It clearly has more value. People pick it up. You know, it's very unlikely that it would not be used somehow. And then on the other side, you have things that are much more um, just simply waste, things that are broken, um, municipal solid waste, you know, all of those sort of things that we, we have in our trash cans that's waste so plastic is really kind of on the border between those two in interesting ways and so people are figuring out well how can we two directions one is how do we shift it more onto that scrap side of the equation and the other is how do we just keep producing less how do we produce less of it use less of it demand less of it and so both of those tactics are very much in play in the u.s and other developed countries right now
0: I I have to imagine that there's some scientists somewhere listening to this and saying there's also a third way. And the third way is to create a a substance that behaves like plastic. Absolutely. Which degrades. Yes. (laughs) And and I'm sure that there are people at DuPont working feverishly on this problem because if they were to solve it, well, that's a big payday. Yeah. Is there any – and again, I don't know – I'm not a chemist, but Mm -hmm. is there such a substance on the horizon? Is there anything like – you know?
1: Yeah. Um, it depends how you look at it. Uh, yeah, I think finding that substitute they're truly biodegraded or composted quickly and had the same, um, qualities as plastic, uh, that, and it wouldn't have to be the same thing throughout all the applications of plastic. That's kind of considered right. the Holy Grail, especially if it can be mass produced and cheaply. Uh, we do have some replacements, paper straws. Are one, Our people are working towards biological solutions for like the, um, polystyrene and, and thermoplastics. Uh, then you have what are called compostable uh, utensils, single-use disposables, which are not really compostable. Uh, they have problems in that they have to be shipped to an industrial composting facility. They take a long time to degrade. And then you also have um issues with chemicals used in, in making those that can turn out to be quite toxic. So all of that to say is it's it still really eludes us, but there are a lot of efforts going on from uh large scale, from small scale to large scale. There's one other actor though looming over this, and that's the petrochemicals industry and the fossil fuels industry. Yeah. And you see this is Sometimes I I think, well, maybe this is going to be like ozone layer depletion, that we find some substitute (laughs) in the way that we found a substitute for chlorofluorocarbons. And, you know, we put that, started using that substitute and things really improved. But uh, the the chemicals companies were the ones that produced those and sold them in the first place. But Mm -hmm. then you have the petrochemical industry saying, hey, you know, people... Might switch out of fossil fuels for fuel and energy because it's causing climate change. We need to find another use for it. So let's go and produce plastics, and that's that's kind of been the pressure on the system. Is mm-hmm. it's oil is cheap right now with the shale gas boom from fracking. So that's put a lot of pressure, or it's it's really um, created a, more of an incentive for companies who. You make things out of plastic to just use virgin resin rather than spend the extra money on what might be recycled uh, polymers and plastics.
0: And total consumption of plastic is going up very rapidly. Isn't that true? Yes, it is. Yeah, because one of the things that I've noticed, again, I told you that I sometimes work on houses and things like this, kind of a hobby, and is the number of things that are made out of plastic now that used to be made out of metal or wood, mm-hmm. uh, because there are new kinds of plastics that are really extraordinary, actually. <laughs> they're very light, and they're very strong, uh-huh. and they're durable, and they're made of plastic. Yep. And you, can't even hardly, you can hardly recognize it. It's just kind of an incredible thing. But they're right. made of plastic, and they ain't never going away. They might right. break, but they ain't never going away. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you look at something like a computer or even your car, I don't know how old you are, I ain't going to ask, but cars used to be made largely of metal. Yes. <laughs> my impression now is that they're made largely of plastic, plastic yeah. or some some derivative thereof. Uh, maybe some of it's plexiglass. I don't really know. What, mm-hmm. Like the yeah. bumpers of my car, what are they made of? I, don't, I can't kind of, figure it out.
1: They're kind of plastic yeah. if, you, if you've had to, yeah. you know notice if well,
0: someone's rear-ended you you do tend right they're pretty incredible plastic. right the dent come yeah they're they're pretty incredible There don't no dent gets left it might be scuffed a little bit uh, you know it's a good it's a good thing from that standpoint yeah well it's but a from, good the standpoint from a couple of,
1: yeah. of standpoints one is of course it's lighter it uses less gas
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So they're all, yeah, your whole job is about (laughs) (laughs) trade-offs. Your job is just a forest of dilemmas. Yes.
1: Yeah. Once you throw in climate change as well, which is what I've been teaching about a lot lately. You're you're kind of in this world of like, well, you know, how do we make this work? And I have to say plastics and waste, for many people, good to focus on because – Actually, I mean, although I think it'll be very hard to actually solve this problem, there are many things that are really going to make a big difference. And that difference can be made pretty quickly too. It's not like it's something, I mean, we do have huge stockpiles of plastics. so I'm not going to minimize that. But uh, it's something that we can get a handle on uh, if we have political will. I'm not saying it's not political. It's very much, there's a lot of conflicting interests. And that's one of the reasons it's so interesting. But for many people, it's like, okay, we can tell waste through a problem, and here are solutions A, B, C, and you know, let's 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 work together on that.
0: Yeah, I was. It's very interesting. I was, you know, when the Green New Deal came out, you know, one of the things mm-hmm. people were saying, I don't, I didn't read it very closely, but you know, one of the things was, we should fly less. That's not going to happen. <laughs> it's just, that's just not that, that's just not in the realm of reality. Uh-huh. I don't I don't know what to say because again, it is really all about trade offs, and we kind of like modern life, and right. people are not going to give it up easily. And so, saying "don't drive" uh-huh. that, that doesn't really get us anywhere. Well, literally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I should have been smart enough to recognize that was a pun in the making, but I was <laughs> I, I wasn't. But, but yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, Europe is is ahead of us in this. I mean, I they have trains; they have really great networks of trains. So yeah, in do. Europe, the movement to actually cut down on flying and driving has been pretty effective. For us, you yeah, know, we fair. don't have that infrastructure, so
0: no flying right. is. But what we have we're this geographical for. problem. I mean, you know, I mean, you fly back and forth to Chicago; that's a long way. Would you like to drive that or take a train? Mm. I I wouldn't. Um, I used you to drive. That,
1: yeah, I'm working from on working to, to, putting yeah. my classes online, so at least. That's
0: well, that yeah, that's something. I work remotely, so okay. you're right. I don't travel anywhere. I mean, six miles from my house is a long way for me. So I don't know if that's pathetic <laughs> or not, but uh, yeah, I'm a climate warrior, yeah. sort of by, but not by design. But I just don't really go right. anyplace. But uh, yeah, but yeah. I'm very careful with waste. I'll tell you that. I I know that you have a hard stop, and I want to give you time to prepare for it. So let me ask the traditional. Final question on the NewBooks Network, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: Oh, well, I think um, I really have mapped out with this book a lifetime of work and research. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's, that's, that's um, As long as I'm not teaching 365 students as I am this semester, I'll be able to get back oh, to that. I'm working on um, a few sort of joint projects with, with friends uh, and colleagues. One is on the right to repair movement, which I think is a really fascinating global movement that has emerged and reemerged, I guess, in the global north in recent years. To I, the, I, um, I'm all for that. Yes. <laughs> challenge the big companies to allow us to repair um, our goods uh, that we buy from them. And that's a matter of intellectual property as well as know-how and the tools and the manuals. And then a lot of repair shops that are growing up around the world and incentives to um, fix things, communities, to bring communities together. There's a lot going on there. I wanna, I've got another project on the global governance aspect, um, on how global conventions are being used, like the Basel Convention that I mentioned before to uh, regulate waste. Can that happen? What's going on? Will the World Trade Organization step in at some point? Uh so you know that's that's two that are immediate also over the next year or so I'm really hoping to write a lot more about Operation National Sword and its impacts that was really unfolding as I was finishing the book mm-hmm. a lot more of it was so there've been so many really fascinating ripple effects locally and globally that have been ongoing for a year and a half uh and that's really revealed to me a lot about the global waste economy that uh, I think really much extends on what I, what I put in the book. So that's some of it.
0: <laughs> well, my vote is yeah. for the right to repair one, uh-huh. put that one on the front burner, so yeah. to say, because yeah. I'm looking at my phone, which probably costs somewhere between 500 and and $1,000 and the battery is dying because you know, batteries do die and I can't replace the battery. No, of course not. <laughs> like what's with that? Yeah. I can replace the battery in my car. But yeah. I can't place the battery on my phone. Right. Like that, there's something wrong about this. Yep, yep. It's a and good phone. It's a it's a fine phone. It works well. It's like five years old, but it's a fine phone. Yeah. I mean, and I if just want to if you hack battery. into
1: it, or just sometimes if it's that old, they will simply, you know, the software upgrades won't be compatible, and that's it. Again, you have got a brick on your hands rather than a usable phone, and that's great because now you have to go pay Apple or whoever,
0: yeah, right, two
1: hundred bucks
0: bastards i know i shouldn't say that sorry
1: (laughs) the control over our lives of these devices is is quite incredible and i think there's a lot of concern in global repair communities that what's coming no longer are these huge computer monitors coming through and all of these things that can be easily taken apart and working parts put into another one very interchangeable that's that's no longer the case with many of the devices we produce and we need to be able to repair these we need people you know they should be they can be shipped abroad and if they're safe they've got non-toxic materials they've got instructions they've got interchangeable parts then you've got these great markets for them overseas that are really perfect right right. Uh, that's but we're not there yet
0: well i hope that I get to learn how to repair because I kind of knew how to repair computers a little bit and and phones yeah. no but you know I used to be able to take the back off of computer look into it and and put cards in and stuff like this and right. I'm sure there are still such computers but that not the one I have in my desk I mean it's it's modular yeah it's, it's I mean it's it's one thing it's a unitary that's not yeah. modular it's unitary it's like yeah. a thing it's a yeah so I can't do that well anyway let me thank you very much for being on the show we've been talking with Professor Kate O'Neill about her book Waste which is just out from Polity press. Kate, I want to say thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Marshall. That was that was a great conversation.
0: Absolutely my pleasure. And let me tell everybody that this is Marshall Poe and I'm the editor of the New Books Network and I hope you keep listening to us and I hope to hear from you soon. All right bye-bye.